0: Amen. Uh, You know, I heard amazing things about uh, the men's retreat. Uh, Choir, crushing it as usual, especially that front row. Oh my gosh, the future. Uh, Good morning. If you could take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John, that's towards the back end of your Bible, after 2 Peter. You know, this morning, our church, we're going to enter into a new preaching series. But to kind of set up uh, the series, maybe I can kind of arrange the furniture for all of us. Uh, and kind of set the stage. You know, um, for me, I'm, I'm really amazed by my children as a father of young kids. You know, because they, they, they teach me so much. Uh, they show me so much about the human condition, about even like what humans crave. They, they reveal so much about like the cravings, the, the needs, and the desires of, of human beings. So, you know, for example, like even physically, um, it's amazing they're craving for food right, like my daughter who is almost two will eat everything in sight, Uh, or even physically like with sleep uh, with my son who will be five next month. I mean, nap version of my son versus no nap version of my son. I mean, it's like meeting Jesus versus the fallenness of man. I mean, it is, it's astounding, right? Uh, But, you know, even though they're young, even uh, outside of just their physical cravings, I'm already starting to see kind of deeper cravings and needs in their hearts. For example, um, they, they really have this craving for, for happiness, for joy, yeah, even at their age right now. Uh, like, like the sense that uh, all of their wants, their needs, it's kind of met in this deep and profound way that makes life kind of click in a way where they really feel like this is life that is truly life. I, I know they're young, but, but I already see this craving for this joy, like this wholeness of life. I know this because um, uh, when they don't get what they want, the way that they'll, they'll fight each other, right? So like my daughter, she's the one who's taking all the swipes at the face with the claws. Uh, you know, and my son's like, oh my gosh, I need a cup of coffee, please. It's so early in the morning. And, and so I, I kind of see this craving. And, and can we agree that every single human being in the world, like every person in this room and beyond, in this entire world, we, we all crave this happiness, we all want joy, like, like this deep, profound, where our needs, our wants, in the deepest sense, it's really met in this kind of profound, secure way that almost makes life click in a way where we feel like, I'm living life that is truly life. Like all that I was wired for, I'm experiencing that. We're all, we all crave that. But here's the problem, is that happiness is elusive. I mean, if you just do a Google search, that becomes very evident, because the moment we, we, we even kind of attain a little bit of happiness temporarily, it's soon gone. So many things seem to jeopardize and threaten our joy and delight and happiness. And there's a lot that I could list, but there's one, one thing that I think always threatens our desire of, of happiness, our, our happiness, which is this, uncertainty. Like, you know, humans, we have a funny relationship with uncertainty. You know, people talk like, oh, you know, I love adventure, you know? And we talk like that until we are actually in an adventure. And we're like, I want to go back home, right? Because we don't don't do well with uncertainty. We do not like ambiguity, right? So, for example, like, even in the most common uh, times of the day where, like, we should not be stressed out. We are because of uncertainty. Like, have you noticed when you go to the movies you do know that the main character is not going to die. But people are, actually stressed out. Like you guys, you know, Chris Pratt, and if you don't know him, I, I, I truly apologize, but you know, Chris Pratt is not going to die. Denzel Washington is not going to die. He can't even die in reality, in real life, right? He's that awesome, right? But, so we know somehow the plot, which is fake, is going to be resolved, and yet we feel anxiety as we're watching the movie. Like if you ever if you ever hung out at a living room with a couple of people watching a sporting event, you know that's a really joyous occasion. There's good food, good company, fun entertainment. But have you noticed, like towards the when it's crunch time, right towards the end of the game, if it's a close game, what does someone say? Oh my gosh, I can't even watch this. Yeah, you can. It's inconsequential. It's a game. It's going to be okay. But for some reason, that uncertainty, even, even in a, a, a sports game, we do not like it at that moment. In fact, I was doing some research, and a one study showed that um, like in more neurotic people, with people with more neurotic tendencies, they actually feel more stressed out by receiving negative feedback than uncertain potential positive feedback. So so they're more comfortable. The more neurotic you are, with the negative feedback that you know, rather than the potential positive feedback you don't know. So it's almost like, oh, thank God, you know, I got fired, but at least I know, right? It's like, whoa, we have have such an interesting relationship with uncertainty. It, It has a way of kind of invading and stealing our joy. Now, now, I don't know if uh, this resonates with any of us, and, cause I, and, I, and I bring this up because we live in uncertain times. Our, our current uh, nation, the world, things happening politically, uh, economically, socially, natural disasters, there's a, a whole host of uncertain things that are on our minds this morning, and even outside of what's happening out there, when we kind of zoom, zoom into what's happening even in our personal lives, I mean, there's uncertain things that are going on in your life right now. Like some of us, uh, we're, we're not sure what's going to happen with our marriage. Other, others of us, we're not sure if we want to get married, or we're uncertain of if we're ever going to get married. Some of us, uh, you know, we, we are uncertain of what's going to happen in terms of the future of our children. And we have the highest hopes for them, but we're just uncertain. Others, we're not sure if we want children. Some of us, we're not sure if we can even have children. Some of us, we're not sure if we're going to be able to have a job, land a job, hold a job, or if we even want to spell the word job, right? Uh, some of us, we're not sure if we want to graduate, if we're going to graduate, when we're going to graduate, if we even want to graduate. And, and even deeper still, uh, even in terms of the Christian faith, there, it might be possible that there's someone in this room where you're wondering, even my faith, I'm not even certain, like, are we just crazy? Are we just gathering? Is this, this craziness? Like, we're just singing songs, and is this even real? And so as much as we want to say that we are happy, the reality is there is more uncertainty and ambiguity in our lives this morning and in this room than we even want to admit. Now, if that's you, uh, we're kind of in good company. Because much of human, humanity and human history, I think they've kind of experienced and felt this uncertainty. In fact, a French thinker, uh, Pascal, he said, and this is just a, a warm, um, a heart-melting quote, he said about humanity, we sail within a vast sphere, ever drifting in uncertainty, driven from end to end. Merry Christmas to you, Pascal. Very warm. No, it's, it's, it's saddening. Our, our human condition is marked by uncertainty. And I wonder if almost 2,000 years ago, if there was a collection of churches in this place called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, I wonder if they would have also felt this type of uncertainty as well. You know, uh, this collection of churches, uh, they existed in the late first century. And the reason why I bring that up and the reason why it's pertinent is because in the late first century, uh, two things uh, had had happened that were uh, markers of their reality. First, um, the majority of the uh, apostles had died off by late first century. So a lot of the godly influences who were teaching them about Jesus and testifying of the gospel, they had actually died off. But not only were godly influences gone, but at this time, other influences, other voices started kind of coming into the churches that were teaching something, that were proclaiming something a little bit different and contrary to what the other apostles were teaching. Now, what are some of these ideas? Well, one thing that the early, late church in the first century, some of these voices were saying was... And they borrowed it kind of from Greco-Roman philosophy that uh, there was a division of spirit that you know the human spirit is good, uh, but that the, the body, the material, is evil, and so that humans we must escape our, our inside invisible spirit must break out of the material evil. Kind of that's what we have to escape from, and why that mattered for the Christian gospel was because these voices were saying so. You know, like Jesus, it was impossible for him to have been fully divine and fully man. That's an impossibility. Because how could divine spirit and material fallen, broken flesh, how can they coexist? No, no, that's impossible. And so they were threatening uh, the very gospel that they were claiming to believe. And so instead they said, no, 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 what you actually need is not not Jesus, because, I mean, he he wasn't even like really God. Instead, what you need is, is this special secret knowledge that we know of. And if you'll kind of, kind, of, kind of join us, we'll let you in on the secret knowledge. And so that's why um, later on, this, this teaching became known as something called Gnosticism. Uh, which comes from the, the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, right? And they taught that Jesus was inconsequential to the faith. Then in, in, uh, you instead needed secret knowledge. And so here, what was ha- here is what was happening to the, the early church was, one, on the one hand, their influential, godly voices, apostolic figures had died off. And now these other voices were coming in questioning their very salvation and so if you are a member of this church of ephesus or modern day turkey asia minor here's what you're wondering you are marked in uncertainty because you're saying um wait is this is my christian faith even real like if this if this jesus if he wasn't even really god whatever he was if he wasn't then did he even die for my sins and if he didn't die for my sins, then do I even know, have a relationship with God? And if I don't have a relationship with God, then like all this whole church thing, these brothers and sisters, that I, is this holding a sham? And so it was in the context of this uncertainty of the church that the last standing apostle, the apostle of love, John, would pen for them the letter of 1 John. And so we come into the first chapter, into the first verse, and John comes firing right away. Look at, with me in verse 1. John writes, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with us, uh, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Okay, so John here is coming out of the gates and he means complete business. Now, we know this for two reasons. Number one, I don't know if you noticed, but there's no customary introduction. Generally, uh, when they wrote letters back then, uh, there was there's like this introduction, right? Like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the church of Ephesus, to the saints, right? Nothing. No greeting, right? John's like, I don't have time. 15 seconds? They're going to spend 15 seconds reading? No, I don't have time for that. Okay, so no introduction. So he means business. Secondly, did you notice how he zeroes in immediately into uh, the main topic of discussion, which is Jesus. He talks about Jesus. He gets to the issue of Jesus. How do we know that? Because uh, in the verses that we read, he utilizes certain vo- uh, vernaculars, things like uh, the word of life, the eternal life, that which was with the Father, that which was from the beginning. This is the same nomenclature and same vernacular that John utilizes in the gospel of John uh, when he talks about the word, the second person of the Trinity who existed throughout all eternity with the Father. And so he's talking about Jesus, but not just Jesus generically. If you look in verse two, he zeroes in to talk about the historicity, the actuality, the reality Of Jesus' true existence. Look at verse 2. Notice what he says. He says, The life, this is Jesus, was made manifest. Now, that word manifest, when you really press into the translation, it can actually be translated revealed, made public, to be made exposed. So John here is wasting no time. He's getting to the heart of the issue, and he's saying, hey, look, I know that uh, those people, uh, they, like, kind of came in, and and they were saying, like, Jesus was not really who he was, and so you need a secret knowledge. You need something secret. Yeah, there's nothing secret about it, because the eternally existing second person of the Trinity actually came to the earth, and he was made public. We're like, how do you know that? I don't know if you noticed, but in verse one, did you see all the sensory language that he uses, right? In verse one, he's like, uh, you know, I, I heard him. I, I saw him with my eyes. In fact, I actually gazed upon him. I touched him with my hands. He utilizes sensory language, verse one, verse two, and verse three. So what he's saying is, uh, I, I know that Jesus was real because um, I spent time with him. Mic drop. drop. Right? And, and so, John here, he, he's not trying to have a nice discussion. He's not saying, like, oh, you know, like, this is what I think. What do you think? This espresso, it, it's amazing, it's, it's delicious. No, he's saying, this is what I think, and it's true. I don't like coffee, but I saw Jesus in the flesh. I spent time with him. And so, what he's trying to do, he, he's fighting for their certainty of their entire proclamation of their faith on account of the reality, the historicity of Jesus. I love what one commentator says about all this sensory language. This commentator says, to see and bear witness are legal terms of a courtroom deposition. Yeah, this is polemic. John is defending, he is proclaiming the actuality and reality of Jesus. Now, um, for some of us who have kind of grown up in the church, uh, you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, do it, John. Tell them. Others of us, we have... You're like, not me. Uh, others of us, we've, we have grown up in the church, or maybe we haven't, but if you're honest, there's a little bit of skepticism. Because you know the moment uh, someone is a little too certain, especially in our culture and in our day, don't we get a little skeptical? Because we're like, how do we know John didn't have an agenda? Like, like, what if there was something that he was trying to do? Like, how could he really know that the second, the eternally existing divine son of God came as a man. Like, how do we really, really know? Um, now, th- that's a, a wonderful dialogue I'd love to have, but for the sake of time, I, I can't engage in, 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 in the whole thing. But in the spirit of John, I'm going to kind of cut to the chase. I, I think we can know uh, because of the-, the Christian's enduring spirit at the face of violent death and persecution embodied in John himself. Like, let me explain. Um, Pretty much all scholars they unanimously agree that at this time John was the last standing apostle. He was the last one. One scholar theorizes and proposes that at this time John was maybe 80 years old. I'm not saying that's old. Don't want to get in trouble. I'm just okay. okay now, why, why does that matter? Because when you when you kind of put the two pieces together, that means that John had witnessed all of his pre-friends. Uh, his apostles, his co-laborers in the gospel, he watched every single one of them die off. You know how a church tradition records how all the other apostles died? Here's how. This is a church tradition, extra biblical, uh, but it says that um, Paul, the apostle, was beheaded. Matthew was stabbed to death. Thomas was pierced through with spears. James, he was stoned and clubbed to death. Matthias was burned. Peter was crucified, upside down. And Andrew, he was crucified. He just took the regular order, no upside down. He just wanted the, the standard procedure. Here's why I bring this up. If you are, if you are John, if you're 80 years old, and you know, you, you've lived a lot of life, and you've watched all of your friends die off in violent, cruel deaths one at a time and you're not really exactly certain if what you believe is really true or it's a hoax or you have an agenda, like this is the time to hang up the joke. Like this is the time where you say, hmm, I'm seeing a pattern here, like beheading. Maybe this is the time where I should just come out and say like, hey guys, I I don't know. Like, you know, for me, uh, I I do not uh, like, I can't even keep a uh, a surprise secret from my wife. Because the moment she goes, if you don't tell me, I'm going to tickle you. I'm like, let's not get violent. Those who live by the sword shall indeed die by the sword, right? Like, I have no zero tolerance level, right? Now, second century theologian, Tertullian, do you know what he records happened to John after, after First John? He says that uh, Romans, they, they took him and they plunged him in boiling oil. And he lived, He lived, and then afterwards, he was exiled to this, like, island called Patmos. And Patmos was the place where the Romans, they they would send uh, uh, prisoners to to carry off their sentence. And, you know, it's so funny, because scholars are like, well, you know, John did not, uh, he did not die a violent death. He was actually the only apostle to die naturally. As if he had it easy. Right? Not only did he have to grieve all of his friends dying, but when he's about to get plunged into boiling oil, he's like, it's my turn now. I finally get to see Jesus, and he lives. He doesn't die. And he lives on some foreign island. What would compel a man to go through all of that? Like, what would compel any human being to say, oh yeah, I'll go through all of that. There's only one thing. Certainty. Certainty that This Jesus, that that this Jesus truly appeared, that the eternal life, the word of life, who was with the Father, who was from the beginning, had truly appeared in human history, and that he had heard him, He, he saw him, he gazed upon him, he touched him, and indeed, he was life, eternal life, who can give life for sinners. Only if you're utterly convinced, only then can you, even at the face of death, not flinch, And this is why John, late into his life, when he sees this church mired in uncertainty and their joy being threatened, proclaims to them, hey, I was there. I saw him. Jesus, he's a reality. He was made manifest. He was an actuality. Now, for all of us this morning, uh, this kind of uh, brings us to two discussions Two implications. Here's the first one for those of you uh, taking notes. The first uh, implication is that the Christian message, it makes life truly livable. The Christian message makes life truly livable. Uh, maybe, maybe I need to uh, expound on this just a little bit. You know, if you're sitting here and, and you're kind of a, like a skeptic, you're like, I don't know about this whole Jesus and him really appearing in history um, was he even really God? And you can deny that. But even if you do, you still have to deal with the greater reality. The reality that we sail within a vast sphere, ever drifting in uncertainty from end to end. Like, you have to deal with the reality that life, like, w- what's the point of it all? Like, we're just going. We're trying to make ends meet for what? For what purpose? There are core, crux, life issues that you cannot answer. You're just living and swimming in a sea of endless uncertainty. So even if you want to deny Jesus, you have to find some sort of solution that's going to deal with uh, the unlivable reality of uncertainty. Now, here's what our society says, right? They propose kind of one of two options. And what's interesting, it's very Gnostic, very ancient. So here's proposal number one. Our society says you can, you can deal with uh, all, of this, all of life's unlivable uncertainties by uh, trying to have mastery over limited knowledge. Try, try to master limited human knowledge. Sounds kind of Gnostic, doesn't it? So, so um, you know, like uh, lean into facts. And just science only and, uh, you know, know yourself, take these assessments, get a degree. And and just just try to accrue as much limited human knowledge as possible. But none of those things answer life's greatest questions. Human origin, where do we come from? Purpose, why are we here? The end goal, like where are we headed to? What is all of humanity existing for? What's the end goal? None of human limited knowledge can answer those questions. So we can gain all the knowledge that we want, but every single night when our heads hit the pillow and we're staring into the ceiling, we can't answer core human questions. And then we're just going to die. We just die. That's it. Now, that's one proposal of society. Now, the second proposal is not so much mastery over kind of limited human knowledge. Instead, it's to climb... uh, Try to climb the ladder of higher forms of human living. Again, sounds very Gnostic. How? By the accruement of, of wealth, toys, and experiences. Because why? For today we live, we eat, we drink, and then tomorrow we die. And so the goal is to just, just try to you know, get a bunch of stuff and, and have fun while we're at it. And then we're, we're just, we're just going to die. And then when we die, all the stuff that we accrue, it becomes worthless as if the toys that we had even meet our deepest needs and wants in a profound way that makes human life click. It doesn't. It doesn't. And so, for me, I do not find the Christian message, uh, it's not something that I want to believe because I have nothing else to believe, it just makes the most sense in terms of making life the most livable. Here's why. Because if indeed Jesus, the second person of the eternally existing God, did come as a man. That means that the goal of life, it's not to just try to sort out meaningless creation, but that I can have relationship with the creator, that I can have fellowship, partnership, life with him, and all that he's doing, I get plugged into that so that my deepest human needs, my deepest human wants are met in a profound Way. So for me, I find the Christian message most believable because it makes life not just bearable, but very livable. That's implication number one. Implication number two is the Christian can be truly happy. The Christian can be truly happy. Now, we need to do some deconstruction work here because in certain uh, church circles, the moment a Christian talks about happiness, they're immediately deemed unspiritual, right? It's like, you mean joyful. You mean blessed. Because, you know, ha- happiness, is, it's temporary, right? It's like, well, I, don't, I didn't know there was a difference. Uh, or even when we talk about holiness, someone's always like, oh, I mean, like, it's, it's about holiness, not happiness. And I, I get what people are saying, but it's like, you just, you're actually saying that holiness is miserable, right? Uh, but can, can I just say this? Regardless of whatever vernacular or form we use, blessed, happy, joyful, um, can we agree the christian should be the happiest person in the world the christian should be the most joyful person in the world why because it's true because jesus really appeared so so when you when you when you live today and you say i have relationship with god i have fellowship with god that's true because of the reality of Jesus' appearance. When you say, hey, this, this church, we have fellowship with each other. We have partnership. We share a life together. That is true because of the reality of Jesus. Look, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, pain and sorrow is not a reality. It is. But I'm just saying that the reality of Jesus reorients pain and suffering. Now, now, some of us here, um, we, we use this phrase a lot, right? Right? Um, We'll say things like, um, you know, I know it's true, but I don't feel it. I know it's true, but I don't feel it. Do you realize that what you're saying should actually make you happy? Because if it wasn't true, if Jesus didn't appear, your feelings don't even matter, right? But the fact that you can say, yeah, I know I don't feel it, but at least it's true, praise God for that. Because that's so much better than I totally feel it, even if it's not true. I know Jesus never showed up, but I really feel it. No, no. In fact, the appearance of Jesus' reality, it even transcends how we might feel subjectively on a given Sunday or Wednesday or Friday. We should be the happiest people in the world because of the reality of Jesus. This is is what John, this is why he's writing this letter. Look with me in verse 3. He says, that which we have seen, he's talking about Jesus and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Christians, we, we can be truly happy you know, maybe I can just share this story. Um, you know, this past Friday, we, uh, the college group, we had this outreach event. And uh, it's gonna be going on for four Fridays. And every Friday, I'm, I'm asking a certain student to share their, their story and their testimony about, you know, God's grace or his undeserved favor in their life. And I asked someone uh, to share this past Friday. And I got his permission. So don't worry, I'm not putting him on blast or anything. Uh, I, I asked him and he said, yeah, you know, it'd be great. And then like Thursday, he just like, totally stopped messaging me. And I was like, it was 4 p.m. on Friday. I was getting nervous because, you know, I'm a little bit of a control freak. And then he, uh, he, he messages me. He texts me back and he says, um, I, I can't do it. He's like, I haven't read my Bible since Monday. I feel like I've sinned. Uh, I would be a total hypocrite. I can't do it. And so, um, you know, I just sent him a two-thumbs-up emoji. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> That would be the most inappropriate time in history. Uh, no, you know, you know what I, I texted back? This is what I said verbatim. I said, do you think the gospel is more powerful than your sins? And uh, he texted back verbatim, yes, but I, but I feel like garbage. Okay, at that moment, I just launched into a, a, a text sermon. If you know me, I don't. I just need a small window, right? I just need a little bit of space and, and I'm ready. I'm ready to go anytime, right? Do, do you know why at that moment I, I was able to p- preach via text message with no emojis? Do you know why? It was because it's true. I, I wasn't trying to manipulate him. I, I wasn't trying to fill him up with fluffy optimism. I really believed that his sins were totally taken care of because of the reality of Jesus. You know, uh, that night, Friday, he he shared his testimony. He crushed it. And you know, when I was watching him share, do you know how I felt? I felt happy. My heart was filled with joy. And then the next day, um, I texted him and I said, um, Hey man, did you feel happy last night? And he said, Yeah. It was great. It was great. And we shared in joy. Our joy was brought to completion because of the reality that Jesus had appeared. You know, if you're joining us, uh, we really want to welcome you to our new preaching series called Blessed Assurance. For the next 10 Sundays or so, uh, we're going to kind of excavate uh, the book of First John. You know, the book of First John. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's really a book of verification of, for the Christian certainty. In fact, 36 times John uses some type of language that, of to know. And so, if you're a Christian, we really want to invite you to be certain of Jesus and gospel implications. And if you're sitting here and you're kind of a skeptic, you're not sure, I also want to invite you to the series. Test our our, our worldviews. Test our ideas. See if it really makes sense. See how it stacks up to reality. But uh, for this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, you can have joy because Christ has appeared. Because of the reality of Christ, we can have a happy, a blessed assurance. Let's pray. I'm going to uh, give you a moment as the band uh, comes up uh, for you to pray to your father. You know, I realize some of us, uh, maybe we kind of feel like that college student where we're like, I I just had such a horrible week and I I don't feel it at all. But because of the reality that Jesus has indeed appeared, that should reorient how we might feel at the moment. So the moment you, by faith, say, Father, he listens. That is true. That is yours because of Jesus, because of the reality that he appeared. So for you, if you're a Christian and you just feel a little bit distant from God, will you call out to him right now and say, God, increase my faith and thank him. Say, thank you for... Showing up on the earth. Thank you for coming to the earth. If you are someone who is just seeking, you're not sure about any of this, but you're curious, would you just say, God, if you're out there, if you're really out there, show yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. Could you do that? And uh, after some time of prayer, the band is going to lead us into a song.